Hi, and welcome to the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. Today, we're going to talk about the least understood branch of government, the judiciary. The courts issue decisions that are critically important to LGBT people, from criminal legal issues to defining what makes a family. If you're a listener to this podcast, you know all of that. We have been bringing you the latest LGBT legal developments for years, but what do we know about fairness in the system? Today, you can expect us to give you a bit of an overview of the courts and how LGBT people interface with them. For example, federal courts in the United States get most of the attention, but did you know that upwards of 95% of all judicial decisions are decided in state courts? The Brennan Center for Justice did some research into the composition of the highest courts in each state. Here are just some of their key findings. In 22 states, no justices publicly identify as a person of color, including 11 states where people of color make up at least 20% of the population. Women hold just 39% of state Supreme Court seats, and in 12 states, there is only one woman serving on the Supreme Court bench. What about LGBT people? Well, very little research has been done, which is alarming to begin with. But what we know is that across the states and territories, only 12 high court justices identify as gay or lesbian. Furthermore, what do we really know about the way judges are selected? In the United States, we make it extremely hard to understand. Even here in New York, the system is a bit of a mess. Did you know that the United States is basically the only country in the world that elects its judges? On one hand, that means that some judges are more accurately reflective of the communities that they serve, but it also means that judges who are supposed to be independent face external pressures to decide cases a particular way to ensure that they're re-elected. Here in New York, the LGBT Bar Association and our state court system have made a concerted effort to improve judicial diversity, equity, and access to justice for LGBTQ people. I am going to be speaking with former host of this podcast and current executive director of the Fela Commission on New York Courts, Matt Skinner, and with Janice Grubin, who serves as co-chair of the LGBT Bar Association's Judiciary Committee. Our goal is to discuss what work is currently being done here in New York and how that might translate beyond our borders so that you have some action steps to advocate for judicial fairness in your state, city, or locality. But we're also going to speak with Alicia Bannon, who's up first. Alicia is at the Brennan Center for Justice and is gonna to talk to us about that report that I mentioned. So let's dig in. All right. I am so excited to have as my very first guest, Alicia Bannon, who is the managing director of the Brennan Center's Democracy Program. Alicia has been on this podcast before, um, and I'm thrilled to have her back. Last time we were talking about uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's legacy, uh, Alicia, and it's nice to have you back. Um, this time to talk a little bit about fair and impartial courts and access to justice. How are you? I am doing well. Thank you so much for having me back. It's really, it's really great to have a chance to chat with you again. 
So um, let's dig right in because we have a lot to discuss. I want to particularly bring up the Brennan Center's reach, recent work looking at the stunning lack of diversity on state high courts across the country. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, what the, the map looks like, what the lack of div diversity is, some of the key findings from that report? Absolutely. And uh, the findings are, I think, really stunning. You know, we, we looked at the, the state high courts across the country. There are currently 22 states with all white state Supreme Courts, and that includes 11 states where people of color are at least 20% of the state's population. Um, 40 states don't have a single Latino justice on the court. 28 states don't have a single Black justice. 44 states don't have a single Asian American justice on their high courts. So we're talking about a really stark lack of representation and courts that really look nothing like the communities that they're supposed to be serving. What about, I mean, that that's just so alarming. What about, um, uh, did you also look at, at the professional diversity and range of experience that people are bringing with them to the bench? We did. And this was the first time we were able to dig into that question. And, you know, there's there's also a really troubling lack of professional diversity. I think that the finding that was most striking to me was looking at the disparities in representation among people with prosecutor backgrounds as compared with people with public defender backgrounds. So over a third of sitting state Supreme Court justices are former prosecutors. Only 7% are former public defenders. And so, you know, you just, you really see that there are certain professional perspectives that are really privileged in those positions and others that just don't have a voice. So there are very, very few people who have any experience representing indigent defendants or, you know, also in civil legal services, representing poor people at all. And we know that state high courts decide some of the very most important issues that affect people, um, particularly state courts in general are vast. They decide 95% of all cases. So what kind of impact does it have on equity, um, on justice, when the courts look nothing like the people um, that they represent and don't understand their experiences. It's a tremendous impact. Look, as you said, 95% of all cases are being filed in, in state courts. And these state Supreme Courts, they're the final word in all of these different questions of state law. So they have a lot of power in setting the legal landscape in a, in, in a state. And that's everything from issues around criminal justice, environmental justice, voting rights, a bunch of issues that really matter to people's lives and freedoms. And when people look, if you look at the bench and those justices don't have life experiences that mirror your own, you know, I think that has a big impact both in public confidence in the court, as well as in the decisions that judges are making, because they're not able to draw from a diverse set of life experiences to inform the development of the law. Can you tell me, I mean, you've been studying the composition of high courts for a long time, um, and, and you're certainly working on, on ways to fix uh, some of the, some of the problems that we have uh, with getting diverse judges of all backgrounds and experiences, but were you also, you know, shocked by, by what you found? I, I was shocked. I think, you know, it's one thing to be looking, you know, state by state and seeing the hurdles that, that 
that diverse candidates are facing, but to see it kind of collectively and to realize just, you know, how sta the staggering lack of representation nationally um, on the bench was, was, I think, really, really jarring to me. Um, you know, at, at the same time, there is a lot that, that needs to be done. And I think another dimension that was very troubling to me is how slow the progress has been. So, you know, for example, we started tracking these, these demographics uh, starting um, two years ago. And so, you know, over time, you know, many additional justices have been um, either elected or appointed to the bench, you know, nearly half have been white men. And so you're not seeing, you know, real progress, fast progress, at least, in terms of bringing greater diversity to the bench over time. And there's a lot that states need to do. I mean, you need to have governors and judicial nominating commissions that are involved in vetting candidates really prioritize diversity, both in terms of outreach as well as in their vetting process. And then you need to look at the hurdles that people are facing in judicial elections. We've studied that, and there are really stark racial disparities, basically at every step of the process in these in these elections, who runs, who wins, who's able to fundraise the most, who gets the most benefit from outside spending. You know, you're seeing these, these racial disparities play out in a very stark way. And I think that's another big contributor to, to the patterns that we're seeing. So in, in order to address some of these issues that we're seeing, what are the top, you know, what are the top things that lawyers can be doing to make sure that we are promoting fair and impartial courts, access to justice, and diverse high court benches? Well, I mean, one thing is people should be throwing their hats in the ring, right? Like, I think one of the big hurdles to achieving a diverse bench is that a lot of people who have not kind of historically been in those inner circles don't think of, think of themselves as future judges. They don't think of themselves as the sort of person who could be a judge. And so I think one important thing for lawyers to do is to really, you know, if, if especially if you're a lawyer who comes from a diverse background, a professional experience, et cetera, to, to think hard that, you know, maybe you are the person who could be the future judge. Also thinking about um, nominating commissions, there's a lot of, there's roles in the process for choosing judges where we wanna have lawyers who care about diversity and access to justice and really value those as criteria for judges. So also thinking about opportunities to engage in the judicial selection process in a lot of states. And then I think also just kind of speaking out, saying that these are important values for the profession and that we're going to hold our elected leaders and others who are involved in judicial selection accountable for this as a real value that we need to forward. And of course, you can also sue, and the Brennan Center has been doing that a lot to make sure that we're suing about process issues, about making sure that elections are fair, that um, when, when people make power grabs over the state judiciaries, because they are political by nature as well, um, that there are, some, there are some guardrails there to make sure that people can't overstep because politicians do want control over the way that their benches um, decide cases. That, that's definitely true as well. We're seeing some really troubling trends in recent years and frankly picking up this year where late state legislatures are really targeting courts and trying to introduce bills that would 
pose real threats to judicial independence. And, you know, I think it's really important for the bar to be speaking out against those measures. And yes, in some instances, at least, those measures do raise real legal issues. There's um, litigation now in Montana about um, a law that was passed there that's changing um, their judicial selection methods. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, other, there's other measures that are kind of moving through the pipeline that, um, you know, may raise issues of separation of powers or other, other constitutional issues within their states. Because, you know, ultimately, you know, courts play a unique role in our constitutional system. We've got a three-legged stool. We've got three branches of government. And you need a court that, you need a functioning court that's independent of the political branches and holding power to account and making sure that our rights are protected. I have never tried to sit on a two-legged stool, but it sounds it like- topples <laughs> over. <laughs> a terrible idea. I do want to ask you, you did a really interesting study and look at, um, you know, a lot of courts are trying to do virtual conferencing, hearings, trying to handle a lot of judicial business, particularly during the pandemic, online. Um, and you've taken a look at some of the best- policies and practices and looked at how that's impacting fairness for people. Can you talk a little bit about your look at, at, at that and what you've found? Absolutely. So, you know, in response to the pandemic, a lot of courts, virtually every court, moved to um, a heavy use of remote proceedings as a way to kind of keep things keep things moving when social distancing had to had to be in effect. And you know, in in some ways, it's been a tremendous game changer. So, you know, it has made for a lot of people it's a lot more convenient if you don't need to be kind of waiting for hours for you know a ten minute conference or something like that. People don't need to take a day off of work or. Lunch up childcare. So there have been real pluses in terms of access to justice and convenience with the use of remote proceedings. But as with many things, there's a caveat, there's a but. You know, so, so one issue that we've seen come up is that there's a real digital divide for a lot of um, low-income people don't necessarily have access to either the cell phone minutes or to the devices that they need to participate in these proceedings. And so, you know, there have been some really troubling accounts of people just essentially defaulting because they couldn't either couldn't figure out how the system worked or didn't have the devices needed to participate um, and or, you know, didn't have, you know, weren't able to fully participate because of, you know, they were they were on a cell phone and they didn't have a tablet. Um, you know, and, and many of these things have been particularly stark for self-represented litigants who don't who have who can find that process um, really confusing. And then I think the other lesson that we're seeing is that not all proceedings are alike. You know, it's really easy to have a couple lawyers get on the phone for a, a conference just to sort of update the judge about what's happening in the case. It's a lot harder to have a virtual trial where people are trying to assess credibility over a screen where it can be hard to read body language to figure, you know, assess somebody's size or appearance in ways that might be relevant to, to judging, you know, their credibility about what happened. So, you know, I think this is something where it was, it was absolutely necessary. Courts were, were trying to move quickly and, you know, were frankly building the plane as they were flying it. Um, and that, that is, and, and courts had to do that. But now we have the benefit of looking back at this experience and sort of seeing what aspects of it worked and what aspects of it didn't. I think the one thing that's really important, though, is that I think the benefits are often a little more visible to judges than some of the costs. 
because so many of the costs are borne by self-represented litigants and others who are not kind of savvy repeat, repeat players in the system. So it's going to be really important for those long-term policies that they're really engaging with a diverse set of stakeholders and are understanding some of the challenges that some people have faced in participating in these proceedings. That's really fascinating. Um, well, thank you so much, Alicia, for joining us today. Uh, it's always a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this, this opportunity to talk. <laughs> All right. Um, and now I'm joined by Matthew Skinner. You all who listen to this podcast faithfully will probably remember Matthew Skinner as the host. I hope so. <laughs> as the host of this podcast. And if not, if you're new to us, um, I'm certainly excited to bring him to us today. Um, he is the executive director of the Richard C. Fela Commission of the New York State Courts. Matt, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. How's it feel to be back on a podcast that you used to host? <laughs> you wish I was um, arts, Art Leonard? <laughs> <laughs> I do miss art too, but it feels, uh, feels great. And I'm so happy to see where you've taken this podcast and all the interesting episodes you've done. So kudos on taking it to even greater heights. Well, thanks, Matt. And so I'm really excited to talk to you today about access to justice for LGBTQ people and how we can go about achieving courts that are fair to LGBT people and that will hear their disputes fairly. And so I'm wondering if you could start by telling me a little bit about um, what the Richard C. Fela Commission's mission is and why it's so important. Yeah, so we um, were just a little over um, four years old, um, so still sort of relatively new in the grand uh, scheme of things. And sort of the idea behind um, the Thala Commission was there had for a long time been in the New York State court system a different commission set up for uh, racial and ethnic minorities. And it was created, it's actually celebrating its 30th anniversary this year. And um, for better or for worse, when they were first created, they, they, the LGBTQ community was sort of excluded from their mission, unfortunately. So there, for a long time, there was this sense that like we were sort of left out and didn't really have a, uh, a fully, um, a vehicle, if you will, to have our sort of concerns officially heard, an official channel to the, the top leaders of the court system. Um, and just a place for the, the LGBTQ judges and, and staff of the state court system to sort of, you know, make our voices heard. So four and a half years ago, Chief Judge Janet DeFior um, created the Fela Commission. And, um, you know, luckily at that point and, and still today, we have a really great group of LGBTQ judges in this state who sort of make up the, the board, if you will, the commission board. You know, that happened four years ago. I, I guess I'll read our official mission statement here. We're dedicated to promoting equal participation and access throughout the court system by all persons, regardless of sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression. To fulfill this mission, the commission will protect and enhance diversity and promote the presence of the LGBTQ judicial and non-judicial personnel within the unified court system. 
So that's a bit of a mouthful, uh, but um, that's sort of it in a nutshell. Um, you know, we have sort of a dual track in terms of doing policy work within the court system, but also doing lots of programming and events to raise awareness, to educate, to um, foster a better environment, um, and to try to, you know, also uh, recruit the next generation of um, LGBTQ judges and employees. I know that when I was at Lambda Legal and we used to deal with this topic of how LGBT people encounter the courts um, and experience discrimination in the court system, that, um, you know, it wasn't widely known that LGBTQ people do report a significant lack of trust in the court system. Um, at the time that we were doing polling about it, it was lower than their trust in police. And so I'm just wondering what kind of challenges do LGBTQ people face in the court system? And what are some of the policy projects that you've pursued that have helped to fix some of those problems? Part of it um, is so sort of elementary in, in my mind, uh, is just being, you know, uh, given basic um, sort of dignity and acknowledgement when you're in court. I mean, often people are in court at the worst moments in their lives, something horrible has happened. Um, you know, you're suing someone because something is some either relationship or um, business deal is totally uh, blown up. And, um, you know, you really are at your most vulnerable um, oftentimes when you're in court. And little things um, that just give you the, the most sort of simple sense that you are seen and acknowledged, I think are, are critical and, and, and go such a long way to improving someone's just basic experience with being in court. Um, so that's sort of been part of how we've thought about our, our mandate and mission is, um, you know, simple things like updating the anti-discrimination uh, policies and rules to um, explicitly cover transgender and gender non-conforming individuals explicitly, um, affirmatively, um, installing restroom signs in courthouses across the state to just let everyone know that there's no question they can use um, the restroom while they're in court that corresponds with their, their gender identity and expression. Um, updating court system forms to let people indicate, you know, exactly how they would like to be referred to um, when they report for jury service. Um, starting to affirmatively count LGBTQ attorneys and judges on um, uh, the, the employment form or the registrate biennial registration forms that attorneys have to fill out. So some of our work seems really um, sort of basic and simple, but we're so proud of these little these little strides that are just small signs, I think, to people that, you know, the LGBT community is seen, they have a voice, they're, they're going to be counted um, and acknowledged as their authentic selves when they're when they're in court. Yeah, and so much of that is having judges and attorneys who are LGBTQ culturally competent and are just LGBTQ. And yeah. so I'm wondering, um, you mentioned that there was a policy achievement of finally counting the judges or allowing them to self-identify as LGBT judges on forms 
uh, and and lawyers as well. Um, what's what's that been like? Have people been responding to it? What was what did we come in with a significant deficit of LGBTQ people serving in New York State courts? I think you know for this, there's sort of a uh, um, a dichotomy between New York City and the rest of the state. Um, we've got a real a real um, amazing critical mass sort of in, especially in Manhattan. Um, the other boroughs, there's sort of one or two in each borough, although um, we still have uh, zero elected judges in Queens, um, which is just, uh, that might change this year. There is a candidate this year. I'm rooting for uh, Michael Goldman. Um, and uh, um, so it's been, uh, and, and certainly, outside of the city. Um, it's also a little hit or miss with, um, we've got some, you know, real, real um, leaders like Judge Gary up in um, the sixth judicial district and she, or she was elected out of the sixth JD and she's now the presiding justice in the third department. Um, and then in sort of the other JDs, again, there's maybe one, one person, there's some of course that don't have any um, Long Island as well. We have um, Judge Chris Ann Kelly out in Long Island, but she's really the only LGBT judge in the whole island. <laughs> um, so there's so much more work to be done in terms of representation. Um, you know, there's, we've got a very, as you know, a very a sort of overly complicated process in New York where you can be appointed or elected depending on the court. Um, you're seeking, but um, you know there's 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 so many more barriers and uh, and firsts that we still need to accomplish because um, while we're while we're certainly proud and um, lucky to have the number of LGBT judges we do, um, you know so many jurisdictions still need to break through that barrier and and and, and have their first, if you will. You know what? I'm I'm just curious why. So you you chose out of law school to go into um, a, an area of the law where you're helping basically others to um, well to improve the practice of the law, people's experiences within uh, the legal profession. What has been the most like? Why did you pursue that area of the law? And what's been the most rewarding aspect of it? You know, it's funny too. I I, rem I I often talk about this story, but the the summer before I started law school, um, you know, our our court of appeals had its uh, its marriage case and its marriage decision, and I remember being so outraged and disgusted and totally, um, you know, questioning why I even want to be in this profession because it was such a a punch in the gut to every. LGBTQ person. I know you know that decision well. Um, and to think that the court system would ever like hire someone like me to do the work that I do is like, if I like close my eyes and put myself back to where I was in 2006, it's just, uh, it's just amazing how far we've come. So, you know, I just encourage other people that are thinking about getting involved in this work, I'm sure you do too, is just, you know, getting pick your particular passion if you have one and just sort of dive in with any volunteering committees, be positive, you know, think long-term um, and you'll really be, you'll be surprised at what's possible even in the, the darkest moments. 
Yes, having come out of four years of the Trump administration, I feel very, you know, similarly. It's it's yeah. been a really dark time as someone who cares deeply about federal courts and judges who serve there, and we can all feel the impact of how important um, they are when they issue decisions. To watch what Trump and Mitch McConnell have done to the federal court system is really disheartening. Um, I did want to talk to you. You mentioned. Um, the Hernandez case, which of course came down against marriage equality. Um, what's it been like to see, you were there when um, uh, Judge Feynman was confirmed to the Court of Appeals. What is the significance of Judge Feynman, who's the first openly gay judge to serve on our highest court? What's the significance of that appointment? Um, what it means to, to equality and, um, and to, I guess, to LGBT people and to his colleagues. It really felt like the start of this just beautiful new chapter that was such a long time in coming. You know, it's for the longest time, and it's even, you know, people that are familiar with um, New York politics just from the last few years, but much more long-term, um, you know, our, the Court of Appeals really set all LGBT policy in New York State for decades. Um, nothing would ever get through the legislature, and so everything would, would end up at the Court of Appeals, and it would be um, interpreting ambiguous, you know, constitutional provisions or statutes passed 100 years ago, and, you know, it would, the, the question would end up in the lap of the Court of Appeals as to should we include the LGBT community within, um, you know, with, you know, you often, oftentimes you hear about being strangers to the law, uh, the LGBT community, and it was true. I mean, we were just sort of incredibly vulnerable to these court decisions that, um, you know, some of them were real breakthroughs and wonderful. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of other ones were disasters. Um, so it's a court that had a real, that has a real complicated history with our community and having a seat at the table just, you know, and it's funny, I don't think um, you, you could maybe debate this point in, in, in terms of what some of the cases, in, in, you know, the implications of some of the decisions, but there was not really a big LGBT rights case while Judge Feynman was on the court. Um, so it wasn't, and I even remember saying this uh, to a journalist the day he got appointed, it wasn't even necessarily about the outcome of a specific case that I thought he would change. Um, it was really just about having, um, having a seat at the table with a, a fully out, a, you know, um, out and proud member of our community. Given the history at that court, um, it just was such a breath of fresh air and such an exciting, um, an exciting start of a new, hopefully brighter future for our community uh, within the, the legal system here in New York. Great. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for spending some time with us today, for talking about the importance of your work. Yeah, thank you. All right, we're back. So we're talking about the importance of impartial courts to the LGBT community. And I'm really excited to have as our guest, Janice Grubin. Uh, in addition to her full-time gig as a partner at Barclay Damon, she is co-chair of the LGBT Bar Association of New York Judiciary Committee. And we're gonna talk today about the courts and what I'm hoping will 
be a conversation that will either inspire listeners to maybe pursue a pathway to the bench or to think about setting up a judiciary committee in their state or locality similar to ours. Janice, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Eric, and uh, thank you for having me. So Janice, you are very involved with the LGBT Bar Association of New York. You are co-chair of the Judiciary Committee, as I mentioned. You're vice president of the association. You're on the governance committee. What is it about the work of the Bar Association that inspires you and, and, and makes you want to give so much of your volunteer time to see uh, it, its work flourish? Well, I deeply believe that the quality of justice uh, cannot reach its full potential without there being full diversity uh, in the courts uh, and in particular on the bench. And I think that our community has been underserved both on the state and federal level for, for since the beginning of time, frankly. And as our community has become more and more recognized as part of the firmament of, of our society, the, the courts have lagged behind. And so it is my uh, goal and passion really to, to, to assist people in our community who are qualified and are interested in assisting them in, in, in getting on the bench and also assisting those on the bench with developing a greater appreciation of our community and its needs and its sensitivities. That's fantastic. Our Bar Association has celebrated 43 years. So we've been around uh, since before you could be recognized as a nonprofit, as a charitable purpose uh, in New York law. And before it was um, permitted to be openly LGBT in the profession of the law. How has, during your career, how has the, have you seen the climate, the culture, societal acceptance, the practice of law, change and evolve for LGBT? Oh my goodness, there's been a complete, uh, I'd say, I'd say 180 degree change since I started practicing law, which was in 1987 when I graduated from law school. I mean, when I, when I, uh, when I went out after my clerk, my clerkship was interesting. It was in a small town in upstate uh, with people who didn't really know who I was. And I kept it that way because it was it it had to be. Uh, people were not open. They may have had their own ideas that I didn't seem to have a partner or a significant other, but I did not uh, encourage uh, the people I worked with to ask me questions. And so I kept a very um, kind of solitude uh, lifestyle uh, with just a few friends who knew me very well. Um, and when I left the clerkship in 1989 and I went uh, to Connecticut, to Hartford, uh, continued along those lines, frankly. From 1989 to 1992, I um, would not bring a, a, a person, a man or a woman, to any of the firm events. It was at a large firm. And um, I'm sure people wondered. But uh, the climate, again, was not such that 
uh, I felt comfortable, uh, you know, uh, being honest with people about where I was. And I thought it would frankly be, uh, be harmful to my career. So I, I, and meanwhile, I, I, I had been with the same person who I met in law school and we carried on a long distance relationship when I was in upstate New York. And then when I was in Hartford, Connecticut, and then, uh, I ultimately moved back to New York and, and worked in the city and, worked at a pretty high powered uh, firm. And uh, I just made sure that it never really came up. And uh, that really continued until maybe marriage became uh, legal in Connecticut. I got married and somehow I started feeling more comfortable about being out and also caring a little less about what people felt about me because I was beginning to gain some real traction in my career. I'm gay, I'm active at Legal, I care about my community, and I'm a great lawyer. So that's the package. If you don't like it, uh, that's, that's not my problem. But that's been my experience um, so that the opening up of our community and the recognition in the greater society of our rights as citizens entitled to equal uh, protection and equal justice sort of corresponded to my own opening up to the legal community of, of who I am. That's a fascinating journey. And I do know that career fair wise, you know, back when I was in law school, we were always debating, okay, do we want to be out on our resume? How out do we want to be on the resume? And today, you know, law students, at least in New York City, are contemplating, how do I find the firm that really values and supports LGBT people, does pro bono work that aligns with my interest? So it's just, it does, it changes. Right. And it's because of people living authentically, but also doing work in bar associations like this to say, we are here, we're professionals, and we're going to force the change, right. Right. Um, which is so important. And I'm wondering if you can talk about your work with the Judiciary Committee, because I think this really is one of the most important impacts that we can have on the profession and on people's lives is by making sure courts are fair, making sure that judges reflect the full diversity of, of the community that they serve. And so I'm wondering, can you talk very in the weeds about what it is that the committee does, how it's structured, how you operate, um, and, and, and the like? Sure, I'd be happy to. So I got involved in the Judiciary Committee maybe about 10 years ago as, just a, as a member, and then I was asked to serve as a vice chair, and then a co-chair, and then a chair. And now I'm a co-chair again, which is great. And um, basically, the point of the committee is to interview uh, candidates for civil and supreme court judgeships in the New York metropolitan community. That was our initial charge. And what that meant was that we would get a list of all the candidates from the Board of Elections um, and then we would send letter invitations to each of them, asking them if they would like to be uh, rated by our committee. 
And every year we get more and more response. This year we sent out 42 invitations. We have, we're in the middle of that right now. We got back 21 responses, which is phenomenal. Because basically every member of the committee has to, uh, in the season, and we're in the season, we're, we're interviewing from April, mid-April to mid-June, the civil court candidates, plus four of the eight DA new, D, D, candidates for Manhattan DA. And each of them we've asked to submit a questionnaire each of us gets the questionnaire. One of us does the due diligence for that candidate. And we have reserved every Monday night. We put on three or four interviews that night, each each Monday night. And basically, we hear the due diligence report first. And then we bring in the candidate, which we've been doing by Zoom, which is fine, uh, um, to, to talk to, with us. I call it gentle questioning for 20, 30 minutes. Then we wish them good night. We deliberate consensually, and then we send out a letter announcing our rating within the next few days. It can be non-approved, which is typically, I think I've seen it twice in 10 years, approved and highly approved. Um, and highly approved is where we have seen an actual connection of to our community and, and, and activities tied to our community, uh, a higher standard than approved. Um, so we have a stellar committee of, I think we're 17 people this year, and because it's our position that it's really important for us to uh, 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 touch, if you will, as many candidates as we can. Uh, if they're LGBTQ, if they're LGB, LGBTQ, fine. If they're not, that's fine too, because we are not only are we here to provide uh, some guidance for the voters in the primary, but we also want to act in a way as, as an educational uh, uh, forum for judges who to sensitize them to our community and the needs of our community. And I've been told that the word in the community and beyond is that you need to interview with Legal. And so I'm so proud of that, you know, because that's how it should be. It's fantastic. Do you see any reason that, you know, another state, some locality, an LGBT bar, um, maybe if they're just starting out, maybe if they're small, couldn't do something similar? No, I think if you have the people that are willing to put in the time, um, I think it's, it's great. Everybody talks about having that the higher quality of justice comes from a, a diverse bench. And that's right. And that's what we're trying to do here. That's 100% right. I'm wondering, can you share, we're lucky enough to have LGBT judges here all across New York State, certainly at the federal level as well, that are very involved with legal, that come to our functions. We do a judiciary in the summer, um, meet the judges kind of, um, and a celebration where law students are mingling with sitting judges. Can you talk a little bit about the what you think are, if someone wanted to pursue a, a pathway to the bench, what are some of the critical um, attributes that you look for in a judge and what advice would you give somebody who's thinking about it? I would suggest that, first of all, the uh, lawyer the, uh, talked with as many people as he or she can about their interest in, in, in getting to the bench and, and talk to people who've done that and find out what their paths have been. 
I would suggest that they try to find a mentor or a few mentors, people who can work with them and guide them in what they have to do because I believe the process is very political and you need to sort of know what clubs to join and who to talk to, um, whose ring to kiss. Um, you know, that's really important. At the same time, at the same time you do that, you need to be able to continue to practice, continue to show yourself as a fine example of the best practices within your practice area. And it's not a something, it's not something that's going to happen overnight. And sometimes it takes two or three times. But if it's something you really want, and then you have to focus on it and plan accordingly. I think that that's good advice. I mean, so much of when I'm talking to a law student about their path, um, you know, it's important to get good grades. It's important when you graduate from law school that you keep your head down and work really hard so that you're respected for the quality of, of your work. But it's right. also a fact that without a network, you really don't have much. And it's important to take advantage of every opportunity that you can to meet people, to have conversations, to show interest, and to ask for help. Because people right. are generally, and all of the judges that I know of, are also willing to help. And it brings me to the question that I want to ask you last, which is a little bit of a conversation about, we lost uh, Judge Feynman, who was um, on our highest court, the Court of Appeals here in New York. He was the first openly LGBT person to be confirmed to that um, important court. And he was very involved with the LGBT Bar Association, Lee Gao. He served as a president of our organization. And he always gave back to law students. He always, um, he was very involved with mentoring young law students, giving them um, kind of clerkships in, in his office and taking them, them through the path and experience. We lost him, unfortunately, uh, shockingly earlier this year. Um, it's been devastating to the community. Can you talk a little bit about Judge Feynman, what it was like to see him confirmed, the importance of that, um, and then what we can do to make sure we're preserving the, the, his legacy? Well, it was so wonderful to see him confirmed on the highest court in New York. It was a, it was a awesome moment to bring tears to everyone's eyes, that somebody of his background uh, and of and our, our community would be would be appointed and welcomed so warmly to the to that bench. Um, it made us proud. It made me proud. You know, it was a singular moment, really, in our history. I think that finally, finally, we have somebody openly gay on the on the court of appeals. You know, isn't it okay? Fine, you could say it's about time, but but nonetheless, that moment that he was appointed, he sat there, it was just wonderful. You know, it's, and that's how it should be. That's not how it's been, but that's how it should be. And in order for us to make sure that that's how it should, remains that way, we need to do all that we can to recognize outstanding lawyers in our community and encourage them to seek opportunities on the bench and do what we can to talk to whomever we know about how important it is to make sure 
there is still a, uh, an LGBTQ uh, judge on the on the bench. Well, Janice, I can't wait to be in the same room with you again um, and to be able to um, to thank you for all of the work that you do. But it's certainly greatly appreciated. And I know that our, our listeners will find real value from the conversation that we've had today. Thank you, Eric. It's been a pleasure. And thank you so much for joining us. This and future episodes of the Legal LGBT podcast can be found on iTunes and on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. Be sure to give us five stars, leave a comment. It's how others find out about us. We'll be back very soon with the Legal LGBT Law Notes podcast with Art Leonard. Thanks so much.